Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Billy Schaefer. Welcome back to Growing Boulder, 60 Minutes of Hope, Inspiration, and Possibility. And we've got plenty of all three for you today. You are right, Mark, as in addition to a revealing look into the future, we're going to meet the Dog Whisperer, perhaps the most well-known dog trainer in the world whose amazing story could become a Hollywood movie, Mark, except nobody would believe it. Can't wait to talk to him. Also, the greatest over-80 distance runner of all time, growing bolder nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell, and the CEO of the National Wildlife Foundation, who says we have now reached our last chance to preserve life on earth. You know, if there's one thing that we all wonder about, it's the future. And of course, being able to predict it, I'd say that would come in pretty handy, especially when it comes to not only running your business, but also running your life, which is why Thomas Fry is a man in demand. Yeah, he is one of the world's top futurists. He's the innovation editor of the Futurist magazine, senior futurist at the Da Vinci Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank in Colorado. And he's the author of a fascinating book called Communicating with the Future. Let's find out more as we chat with Thomas Fry. Hey, Tom, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, we're thrilled to have you. And let's be clear before we get started. You don't have a crystal ball. You don't read tea leaves or palms to predict the future. You read demographic data. You read spreadsheets and trend reports. And and really what you do is probably as much science as art, is it not? Um, that's that's correct. Um we, we study all of the driving forces, all the trends, um, and use a variety of techniques for um, kind of getting in the heads of people that are, that are actually creating the future around us. You know, we see the future, and it seems to us at least, you know, how quickly it's unfolding. A hundred years ago, we barely had electricity. There was no TV. Certainly, radio was just starting. Is the speed of change, is it getting faster with all this technology, or is it just our ability to recognize and document it? Well, uh, part, part of the reason that it's, everything is speeding up right now is that the inter- Internet is a very uh, sophisticated communication system, and it's increasing awareness around the world. So somebody publishes a new report in Canada, people in India read about it 10 minutes later. Uh, something happens in China, people in Mexico know about it just a few minutes later. Um, that awareness is something that doesn't get talked about very much, but that um, that's one aspect of people can track their own industries and things just start happening faster then. And, and Tom, before we get into some of your, your, your fascinating uh, predictions, are you in general optimistic about the future of mankind, or is it as dire as many would have us believe? I, I actually uh, consider myself pretty positive about the future. The, um, um, we're always going to have problems, um, but problems create opportunity. Um, in fact, it's necessary to have problems. Without without any problems, then we'd all get fat, dumb, and lazy. Um, so we don't we don't want that to happen. Can I ask you, Tom, about a, a specific thing? You know, we uh, probably most of us have seen examples of this on YouTube or sixty Minutes or, or heard about it. It's three D printing. I mean, when you th- I can't get this out of my mind because it's about to have widespread commercial and consumer applications. It sounds incredible, and, and I know that you say this is going to create some new jobs, but at the same time, it may eliminate many more. So, how do you think three D printing will affect? what we shop for and how we shop? Um, I, I think 3, 3D printing over the, the coming decades is just going to affect every aspect of all of our lives. Um, we're, we're just starting to to get our minds wrapped around the total implications. But uh, Chris Anderson, uh, former managing editor of Wired Magazine, said that 3D printing is going to be bigger than the Internet and uh, when when you look at it touching every physical object around us, um, yeah, I think it, it it has that that distinct potential. Um, we're we're seeing everything from bicycles to car bodies getting printed to um, um, the guy at the University of Southern California is working on the idea of printing houses, and uh, the technology is coming along very quickly. 
professor at the University of of Glasgow in Scotland. He's uh, he's created a pill printer that can print pharmaceuticals. Uh, so virtually any pill you need, you can just get it printed out. Now, you said created. I mean, is this science fiction, or is this something that we're right on the threshold of stepping into? Yeah, we're right on the edge of it. I mean, it is. Um, I mean, they had last year at the Consumer Electronics Shows, they had shoe printers there that could actually print shoes. Um, so if you can imagine yourself going into a, uh, a clothing store, uh, a few years in the future, and having your body scanned in, and uh, and having a printer right next to it that could print out perfectly fitting clothing every time, and not and not only clothing but also shoes, and so um, this is the, we're we're right on the verge of all this happening right now, um, and and so it, it's going to get more sophisticated and um, better refined as as time goes on but um, there's people a lot of people working on it right now and and you know i, I don't want to get hung up on here we got to move on but but very quickly you read that we're even someday going to be able to print organs uh you know for transplant uh purposes do you believe that yes there's actually considerable effort going on there i do think that that's going to take a bit more time um uh, I think it's that's that's one that where we go two steps forward, one step back, um, as as we try that. Um, but uh, working with living cells, it's entirely possible to print the organs as well. You know, some would say you actually have to be high to think up such an incredible future, which is pretty good segue to to the next question that we have for you, Tom. On election day, citizens in Colorado and Washington voted to legalize marijuana. Do you see this movement continuing and spreading to other states? And if so, what impact do you see it having on our society uh, and the economy? Yeah, when you think about one of our most notorious criminals in, in all history being Al Capone, um, and really what, what was his big crime? It was selling alcohol. I mean, we're going through the same changes uh, coming out of the Prohibition era. Um, Colorado and Washington have the opportunity to jump on this and and actually uh, become the kind of the leaders in the, this whole industry. Um, most of the pharmaceutical companies and tobacco companies were predicting that California was going to go first. So I hear rumors that they had uh, secret laboratories in in California that they are now looking at moving to Colorado because they uh, um, it's going to be their coming out party here in Colorado. But this will affect far more than I mean. People have this this image in their head of people smoking a, a marijuana cigarette, but uh, it's it's going to enter every consumable product that you can imagine alternative health care products, candies and drinks and cupcakes. And um, and, and, and then the other industries that it will affect are um, associations, and there's going to be a lot of testing laboratories that develop around this um, because we don't know what the safe limits are for somebody to drive on the roads and how to actually test somebody. So there's lots of... Uh, far-reaching implications that are going to be determined right here in Colorado. So if that's legal, there are going to be a lot fewer people in prison. And you wrote a great blog about your vision of a future without prisons. We have so many people in there now. How's that going to happen? Yeah, we're um, this this idea that if somebody does something wrong, um, we have a one-size-fits-all justice system, and, and we need to throw people in prison. We are uh, that that destroys lives when you do that. Um, shortly after somebody goes into prison, their their family has to declare bankruptcy. It takes them out of production. They can no longer be productive. We're making we we let you know million people out of prison every year to allow for another million to come in, and uh, the people coming out are worse than the ones going in. So, so somehow we need to change this this way of thinking, and um, and, and I'm not saying we don't need any form of punishment or anything, but um, the, the the idea of using prisons to solve all of our problems is um, is really antiquated, and and we we've, we've been imprisoning. 
far too many of our population. We have the, the highest incarceration rate of any country at any time in history. Mm-hmm. So we need to move away from that and, um, and, and give people an opportunity to really rehabilitate their life rather than to just warehouse them in a prison for a while. Folks, we're talking with Thomas Fry, wrapping up here in just a second, one of the world's top futurists. He reads trends uh, and figures out what's, what's going to happen. Uh, in the final 30 seconds, Tom, you say that the human race cannot survive if all humans only live on one, one planet. What would happen, and how soon do we have to find a way to get out of here? Um, NASA's already looking at other uh, possible ha- habitable planets, but it is going to be an extremely slow process. Um, if you think in terms of if we launch a, a rocket to some of these nearby solar systems to actually uh, send probes in and test out the living condition on, on these planets, if we are able to achieve something close to the speed of light, then that would be like 50 years away and then 50 years for the information to come back. And before we can ever send uh, uh, a ship there to colonize that planet. So uh, this is a long-distance uh, uh, plan, so it's not going to happen um, anytime very soon. Maybe we can figure out ways to make it happen quicker, but I'm, I'm optimistic that that's, that's our destiny as a human race, though. Folks, you think we've come a long way? You ain't seen nothing yet. Learn more about this very interesting guy, Tom Fry, at futuristspeaker.com. And find out what might be just around the corner. Thanks, Tom. Coming up, recapturing the past. How four high school friends who hadn't seen one another in 40 years not only got back together, they got their band back together. This is Growing Bold. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I am Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder where we constantly say it's never too late to recapture the dreams of your youth. And we say that because we see that. Not only do we see it, we report on it. We do countless stories that prove that dreams never die. Yeah, isn't that the truth? And this next story, folks, has a personal connection. Because when I was in high school back in the late 60s, it was in Cincinnati, four of my friends and classmates had a little rock band that was called the Lazy Souls. They played at just a few parties and dances after some football. Games. They disbanded in 1969 and not only never played together again, they never even saw one another until just a few years ago. In 2009, the Cincinnati Indian Hill High School class of 1969 held a reunion, the first time that most classmates, including Ken O'Leary, had seen one another in 40 years. And all of a sudden, there's four of us standing there next to each other, and we hadn't really seen each other in 40 plus years. And then it's the band. And everybody said, hey, it's you guys. So we were kind of shocked that it was us and that we were the band. The band, called the Lazy Souls, played a few high school dances and was never heard from again. But the only known photo of the band and the new reunion photo were about to change all of that. My mother, bless her heart, had saved the original Polaroid of the, of the uh, Lazy Souls. And I had it blown up to a 5 by 7 along with the new picture, and I sent it to each guy, including Kay. And Kay, of course, being the class Facebook guru, you know, she sent it out to everybody. Well, there became a clamoring to start the band back up. But starting the band back up wouldn't be easy. From 1969 to 2009, how many times did you guys get together? Zero. Really? None. No. Uh, I kind of put down guitar when I went off to college. 
The Lazy Souls all raised families and built successful careers, but only Ken O'Leary continued making music. With everyone still working and living in different parts of the country, a comeback was only a dream, but... Dreams never die. Dreams never die. I think all of us, uh, once, once this gets in your heart as a kid, it just never leaves. Against all odds, they began practicing again. At first, individually, then trading song arrangements on the internet, and finally traveling with their wives to weekend practice sessions, all with an eye toward playing one more time for their high school classmates. And I thought if we really had the time and we sound good and everything's working, we would repeat our best song from the first set, which is... Let's preach me in. Mustang South. Oh, yeah, Keep repeating that. Encouraged by their progress, the Lazy Souls set a date more than one year in advance. Almost immediately, posters promoting their performance began circulating in class emails. Lazy Souls, hello Cleveland. 44 years removed from their last gig, the Lazy Souls rolled into Cincinnati for one night only. Drummer Steve Vogel arrives with news of a new grandson. He was actually um, expected yesterday, but uh, he clung on to the uterine walls long enough to be born on uh, today so he could celebrate this with uh, the Lazy Souls. <laughs> As the band carries in their equipment and begins to set up, former classmates stop by to reminisce. We rode on the same bus together. And to decorate the country club venue. Oh, look at that. You guys are unbelievable. That is the fantastic. quality is remembered after, after the price, price is, is forgotten. forgotten. What was the price? We never got paid a we dollar. Never, got paid. never. That's why we said after the price is forgotten, how can you remember something you never got? Oh, okay. <laughs> One final run through for the Lazy Souls, who are joined by vocalist Angela O'Leary, Ken's wife, drummer Tom Vogel, Steve's brother, and bass guitarist Dale Lewis. In 1969, they were almost famous. Tonight, they returned to prove that it's never too late. Oh, man, what do you hear us tonight? <laughs> we are awesome. <laughs> or as my brother says, we're really good for a group that sucks. <laughs> Everybody ready? after a chance meeting and an old photo resurrected a dream, the Lazy Souls are proving that they still have it and their classmates are proving that they can still party. Watch me now! I'm going to follow them wherever they go now. <laughs> I'm a groupie. I'm a groupie. Count me in. After 44 years, the Lazy Souls deliver a great night. Two sets, three encores, and one life lesson for us all. It's never too late to reconnect, not only with one another, but with the dreams and passions of our youth. For me, the moral of the story is I had second thoughts about coming to a class reunion in the first place years ago. And I came reluctantly, and look what's happened. When the opportunity comes, you, you got to take it. This is something that's in me that wants to come out. It's been kind of like hidden for many, many years, and, and I'm sure everybody has things like that.
we all kept the dream in our hearts, and now we're uh, living the dream. This is absolutely on our bucket list, and uh, we're all of us are having a ball. We're like we're like we're 14 years old again. You know, it really was a great night. And, Bill, obviously, in the big picture, it was just a, a dance with 100 people at a country club in Cincinnati. Uh, the Lazy Souls were good. Were they great? No. But, you know, they hadn't even played their instruments in 40 years. But, but here's really the takeaway for me. They were so invigorated by that experience that they are now still practicing on their own. They're getting their families together, you know, every few months so that they continue playing together as a band. I've never been in a band. And Bill, you have, and there's got to be a special kind of connection. And, and I think what they have found, the connection is not just about the music, but music is the glue that pulls them together so they can share the lives yeah. and, and the friendships that they had. Uh, those don't go away. And how great. I mean, we've seen with Facebook how everybody is drawn back to your high school friends who you may not have talked to in 30 or 40 years. And it's another great example, Mark, that the passions of our youth, while they can be dormant for a long time, they really almost never go away. And when you return to them, man, you never know how fulfilling it can be. And it's a story that's being repeated all over the country. Old rock bands, they never die. They just take a three or four decade break once in a while. You know, when it comes to your health, sometimes it's not really about what you eat. It's where you got what you eat. And the evidence keeps growing in favor of food that's locally produced, even though it might be a little more expensive and a little less convenient. For more, here's registered dietitian and nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Do you share my passion for food, especially food grown in your area or products crafted by local artisans? Look closely in your backyard and discover how eating local can enhance your healthy lifestyle. Okay, so check out localharvest.org. This website covers the entire country and lets you pinpoint an area by zip code, from community-supported agriculture programs known as CSAs to farmers markets, restaurants serving local foods, and farms. You'll find it all. CSAs where you can purchase direct from the farmer are popping up all around the country. Localharvest.org. That's really interesting. And Obviously, where you live, Susan, can make a big difference as to what's available. Is this a good area for locally grown food? You know, Bill, when you think of Florida, what comes to mind? Most likely, your thoughts turn to our beautiful beaches and vibrant sunsets, maybe Mickey and Minnie. But how about exotic tropical fruits, peanuts, and juicy watermelons? The Eat Local movement in Florida is hot, and our vast agriculture surprises many people. Do you know there are olive groves in the Florida panhandle, and that orange premium vodka is made from oranges grown in the Peace River Basin? These are just a small sampling of the broad variety of food items and products you can enjoy. You probably think of California as the go-to place for olives, not Florida, but Florida is much more than citrus, and I bet this is true in your backyard, too. So check localharvest.org and get Get out and enjoy the locally grown items all around you. Why is it I get so hungry every time you walk in here? Registered dietitian and nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up next, the Dog Whisperer, world-renowned dog behaviorist Cesar Milan on his new series, Leader of the Pack. That's next on Growing Bolton. Launchpad to What's Next Live coming to the villages May 30th and taped for national broadcast. Join an all-star team of aging disruptors. Longevity expert Dr. Roger Landry, Olympic gold medalist Rowdy Gaines, personal finance expert Gene Chatsky, Blue Zones founder Dan Butner, swimming icon Diana Nyad, rock and roll legend Roger McGuinn, performance coach Jim Smith Jr., aging transformer Dr. Bill Thomas, award-winning journalist Bill Schaefer, and me, Mark Middleton. Change the trajectory of your life. Tickets $35 now on sale at thesharon.com. Stand my hand at the mongrel dogs you teach. 
I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Very excited for this. Our next guest, known far and wide for the television series The Dog Whisperer with Caesar Milan that airs in more than 80 countries around the world. He's an author whose first three books, including Caesar's Way, all became New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, his new show, which is on the Nat Geo Wild channel, is called Leader of the Pack. And what makes his story so interesting is that he is totally self-taught, although his connection with his ability to communicate with dogs was apparent at a very early age where he grew up in Mexico and became known as El Perero, the dog boy. Let's find out more as we welcome Cesar Milan. Hey, Cesar. How you doing, Mark? How you doing, Bill? Man, we're thrilled to have you. Let's jump back a few decades. Is it true that at 13 you actually told your mother that you would one day become the best dog trainer in the world? Well, this is what I ask her, Mom. You think I can be the best dog trainer in the world? And she turns around and she says, you can be whatever you want. That gives you a sense of uh, belief, you know, because somebody is believing something that at 13 years of age, you don't really know how it looks like, but it feels really good. And when you talk, Caesar, people listen because you've been through it. You arrived in this country. You were 21. You were an illegal alien. You didn't know the language. You were homeless, living under freeways in San Diego. But still, you got a big break when you met Jada Pinkett Smith. How did that happen? And what in the world did she do for you? Well, what she did for me was actually the the, the reason why I'm speaking with you. And you know, she she got uh, hired a teacher so I can learn English. And so uh, she hired a teacher for a year, and uh, three times a week the teacher would come to South Central, which that's where my center was, and, and, and teach me for two, two hours at, at a time. And uh, because I, I told her, you know, my broken English back then, I would like to have a TV show or a radio because I, I want to teach people. And she said, well, in order for you to do that, you have to speak English. And she just sent me a teacher. But we were friends before that. I trained a dog for her named Kenji, and then she introduced me to Will, and then I became, you know, the the guy who was working for the Smith. And so since then, we, we became uh, friends until today. We, you know, we're good friends, and I'm very grateful about that situation. Well, you know, a lot of hard work from there to now, but, but that did lead to your show, The Dog Whisperer, which, as Bill mentioned, became National Geographic's number one show its first season and ran for nine seasons. Your new show is called Leader of the Pack, in which you take dogs with issues that make them pretty much unadoptable. You work with them and then allow three candidates to compete for a chance to adopt the dog. What is the mission of your new show, Caesar? Well, it's uh, Dog Whisper helped me save relationships. You know, that dog already had a home and a family. Uh, leader of the pack is going to help me save lives. This is a dog that we'll rescue. We're going to rehabilitate and rehome. You know, around the world, we kill 600 million dogs. And so I, I uh, when I find out about the amount of dogs, we, I feel the need to do something about it. And, and by that time, I felt, you know, Dog Whisper did really awesome. And people became aware it's not the dog. Is the, is the human, and so now let's do something humane. You know, let's let's help uh, the lives of dogs, and at the same time, people enjoy the learning. You know, the educational aspect, and and when you have a dog like you know dog that you just rescue, you're gonna get to learn more because that dog, uh, his trust level is very low, and you know his disrespectful level is really low. Um, so you have to learn. You know, you, we're gonna learn a lot more through this. You know, Caesar, you're a tricky guy because I I think the beauty in in your message is that so subtly it's not really about the dog every problem you help us realize is a human problem it's a person problem you really are i mean you're the doctor phil of the world without anybody realizing that they're getting psychological help you know i always say the dog tells you the truth the human tells you the story wow. you know so the dog will immediately tell you look i'm frustrated because you know, and the funny part, if you think about it, you know, dogs in our country are skinny, but they don't have psychological problems. Dogs in America are chunky, and they have psychological problems. <laughs> so that what that says is, is a dog just reflects the behavior that he lives, um, you know, around. You know, the dog is a reflection of human behavior. And let's talk about us being reflections of our lives, because I know this isn't the purpose of this interview, Caesar. but I want to talk to you about the documentary on Nat Geo Wild called Caesar Milan, The Real Story, uh, about your life that fell apart in 2010. You actually yeah. attempted suicide. What did you learn from that, and what is your message, message to others who are struggling? Well, I learned, you know, that uh, uh, this... Uh, the, I just went into a roller coaster of emotions where I felt that I was not meaningful anymore for the pack. 
you know, to to me when my ex uh, told me we're gonna divorce, and then the kids actually uh, went to her side. I feel that you know my pack is is, is gone, and so I didn't I didn't find a meaning in it. You know, to me it's all about the pack. But then I try to commit suicide. But then you know when God doesn't doesn't uh, feel that it's time for you, you don't go. And that's when I you know I came back and said, okay, so what do I need to do this time? I felt, you know, me helping people was big enough or good enough for him. And and so I blamed him for a while, and, and, and I was really angry at him. And, and But then uh, I realized that uh, I have a new mission, and, and, and that's, you know, so, you know, it's true when they say, you know, bad things happen, and, and, and uh, but you learn something from it. And, but once you come back, uh, it, it does get better. You know, it does get better. And so it's a situation that I never thought that I was going to go through because I thought I was on the top of the world. Now, what an interesting person you are, Caesar, for the experiences you have, the way you started out in life, climbing to the top, kind of spiraling down, but picking yourself back up again. What is it? What can we learn from you? What What do you want to share with us about what life is about? Well, what what, what drives me is to be at service, you know, when, when uh, that's, that's the thing that came to very, uh, very um, uh, uh, strong to me is, is you have to do something that is, is, has a, a bigger message. And, you know, this is me talking to me. It's like, so, okay, so what drives me? You know, it's not the money, obviously. I'm, I was willing to lose everything. And um, so it, it's, it, I find a lot of a big purpose when I, when I can help, you know. And that's really uh, redirected my, my, my depression and my anger uh, into becoming the, the same guy that I was when I jumped the border. You know, I wanted... I wanted to learn to be the best dog trainer in the world because I was going to help dogs, and so I did it. And then I needed to find a stronger, a stronger uh, mission. Uh, and he has that mission now, folks. Uh, he is Caesar Milan, uh, by most accounts the greatest dog trainer alive. His new show is Leader of the Pack. It's on Nat Geo Wild. It's a great show. I saw the first episode. And, and Caesar, before we let you go in the final thirty seconds, your life story would make an incredible Hollywood movie. Except probably nobody would believe it. Has anyone approached you about making a movie about your life? There is three companies right now that want to do the uh, the Caesar Milan movie. Uh, are we going to see it on the screen one day? Yeah, but so, you know, once you start talking about uh, contracts, it gets kind of tricky because Hollywood is not really fair sometimes. You going to get Brad Pitt to play you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. We, don't, we have nothing in common. Coming up next, he may be the most amazing track athlete alive. He's been demolishing one world record after another. His latest effort, taking 16 minutes off the over-80 world marathon record. The incredible Ed Whitlock is next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. The sounds of Roger McGuinn remind you that, yes, you are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And, Mark, our next guest is an international track and field superstar. And I'm not even exaggerating that enough, who at the age of 81, he didn't break. He just smashed the age group world record at the Toronto Marathon. He did it by more than 16 minutes. Wow. Earlier this year, he also smashed the world record in the half marathon. There's more, Bill. He did it while overcoming major injuries. In fact, he now holds just about every age group world record over the age of 70 in the mile, the half marathon, and the marathon. Let's welcome him from his home in Canada, Mr. Ed Whitlock. Good morning, Ed. 
Eric, good morning. How, well, you know what? What makes these new records even more remarkable is the fact that you've been battling some pretty serious injuries. You took a nasty fall on some icy steps, broke a rib. You couldn't train for months. Normally, we hear that when people over 80 take a fall like that, they rarely bounce back at all. It's the beginning of the end. You come back and set a world record. How did that happen? Well, I guess one has to be patient and have be optimistic, I suppose, about uh, how things will go. And um, so it was a bit difficult to get going again. I had made uh, several false starts. My my knees ached a bit when I got going again. I had to have a little time off and then try it again and then try it again. And uh, so perseverance pays off. You know, you know, Ed, I'm in, in my 50s, and I, I sort of had to give up some of the sports I love just because my knees are, are kill me a, after I compete in, in competitions. How, you must have come up against something like that, too. How do you get past those things? Uh, well, uh, so I think you have to try and ignore it, I guess. Um, be optimistic. Uh, I, uh, I was having knee troubles about five years ago, and I saw... Uh, an orthopedic specialist, and they said then that my running days were over, but I've done a lot of running since then. So, um, you know, I, I, if, if my knees ache, I, I take a little bit, of, little bit of time off, rest them, and massage them a bit, and um, it seems to, um, they seem to recover each time. You know, Ed, we want to believe very badly that you represent what is possible for most people. But but be honest with us, because I know you've been studied by gerontologists and exercise physiologists and everybody. Are you a genetic freak of nature, or are you just a guy that won't give up? I think it's a bit of both. (laughs) Certainly, um, and and I suppose uh, not giving up comes with your genes, too, I suppose. So... You know, a lot of it, uh, you know, a lot of when it comes down to it, that's what, you know, if you're blessed with those kind of genes, it's um, one can consider oneself fortunate. But I I honestly believe that, um, uh, what should I say, people can do much better than they think they're capable of if they'll only try. And that's why we'd love having you on, Ed. We were both very excited to get you back on the program here because you're so interesting. And one of the things that, that, that catches our attention, you're famous for running like two or three hours a day, but you do it in a cemetery. Is there a symbolic motivation behind that, or is that just happened to be the place that's got the most flat land for you? Yes, it's just convenient. Uh, it's just around the corner and um, from my house and... Uh, um, it's, um, uh, re- really a lot less dangerous running there than running on the, on the streets in town. Uh, the, uh, the, the drivers, uh, in the cemetery tend to be a docile lot. <laughs> uh, folks, we're talking with Ed Whitlock, who, uh, uh, it's an understatement to call him an international track and field superstar. Some equate what he has done to Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile, you know, decades ago. Uh, in fact, back in 2000, at the age of 69, Ed became the oldest person ever to break three hours for, for the marathon. Ed, has anybody older than 69 done that since then? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, you, I, I don't believe so. You know, which is amazing. He broke these records when he was in his 60s. He broke them again in his 70s. He's breaking them again in his 80s. And no one behind him uh, has come close to most of these. As Bill mentioned in the introduction, he broke the marathon age group world record by more than 16 minutes not long ago. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there in their 80s, Ed, that, that, that are still running, aren't there? No, the... Uh... <laughs> My uh, the number of competitors I have in my age group is thinning out all the time. And do you still run two to three hours a day? Uh, yes, yes. And Ed, do you do anything to break that up? Do you do intervals or sets? I mean, how do you train? What keeps you going? No, I, I just just run around uh, this little cemetery uh, for two to three hours, and uh, at a 
a very uh, a very low pace. I would say it's certainly uh, closer to jogging than running, and uh, I get my speed training from from racing. So I don't do any interval training. And, and you know that must be one of the keys because you know we hear from master athletes all the time that as you get older, uh, you've got to have more time to recover, and then if in fact you you exercise or work out every day, sometimes it's worse for you than, than not exercising at all. But is that one of your secrets? Is is you don't really do a lot of high quality, but you you, you continue every day? I, I think so. Yes, uh, for me anyway, it seems to work. Um... I sort of when when I'm training, I, I try to concentrate on not um, not bouncing up and down too much to try and uh, keep the impact down on on my knees. And I say it's not a uh, it's not a very energetic form of running that I'm doing when I'm training, and it's only when I'm racing that I kind of get up on my toes a little more. And all in all, Ed, in your 80s, you still feel good, huh? Pretty good, yeah. It, it when I run it, when I'm racing, it um, really, really doesn't feel that much different to when I was young. But when I look at the clock, of course, it's uh, a lot slower. But uh, I still, um, I still enjoy racing. Well, I got to tell you, Ed, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope everybody out there understands exactly what an amazing thing it is that that you continue to do by defying time, by staying active, and pushing yourself out there. Here you are in your 80s, and this is Ed Whitlock, one of the greatest track athletes alive, pushing the envelope and proving to the rest of us what our lives can be like as we age as well. Thanks, Ed. Coming up, the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Foundation is confronting the climate crisis, and he says this is our last chance to preserve life as we know it on planet Earth. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over hey. there is Big Bad Billy Schaefer. We're not big shots, but our next guest most definitely is. He's the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation and the author of a provocative new book that's called Last Chance, Preserving Life on Earth. Very interesting read. It's a book that breaks down the science behind global climate change. That's not a hot topic these days, is it? And it takes us from Lake Erie to the icebergs of Greenland, and then again, and from Congress to America's classrooms and farmlands, so you can see where this book is going. Welcome, Larry Schweiger. How are you, Larry? Oh, it's uh, good. Great to be with you both today. And it's great to have you because this is a conversation that needs to be had. And first of all, let's go there. Before telling us that there is hope, tell us what is at stake here. Well, I I think uh, what's at stake is a lot of what... Uh, Folks in Colorado have been experiencing, uh, you know, hotter, drier uh, weather conditions, um, lack of snow, um, increased beetle damage, uh, the, uh, the the changing nature of our weather patterns. Uh, there's there's a whole series of things. I think for farmers, it means less water in the rivers. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to overstate the the threats that we're we're creating for ourselves, and it's. Uh, 
and as you said, there are there's some good news in here, and that is that we have all the tools that we need to fix this problem. We just ha- have to come up with the political will to face them. Well, don't get the wrong idea, Larry, because Bill and I are glass half full kind of guys. We want to know what we can do and how we can get there. But, but but first of all, you know, you almost need to hook some superlatives on this to get people's attention. How dire could the consequences be? I mean, you tell us that uh, you know we may run out of beetles, and and most people don't. You know, it's okay, uh, and I know it's not. But but but. How bad could this go if you carry this whole thing out and we continue to live and behave like we are? Where will we be in 200 years? Well, the the international scientists who have gathered uh, now, in fact, will soon be issuing their fifth report. And their fourth report warned us that if we continue on the path that we're on, that we will see enormous loss of wildlife, uh, in not just in the U.S., but around the world, that we could see uh, somewhere between... 30% and up to 70%, depending on how badly we behave. And, and I might tell you that uh, we're continuing to be, behave as badly, in fact, worse than they had, had predicted. So we're we're on a very problematic path that will lead to, frankly, catastrophic uh, loss of uh, wildlife and, and uh, loss of uh, the things that really underpin uh, human society. And unfortunately, too, Larry, I think it's been made abundantly clear to everybody that in this day and age, nothing happens unless we're staring right into the abyss and the, the crisis is upon us. So what can we do? What what can you tell us? What can empower us to make this change before we go too far? Well, the really interesting thing is that the state of California has adopted a, a responsible uh carbon policy, and they're implementing it right now. And you see the uh, the changes that are taking place, and they have uh, seen dramatic uh, shifts as a result of what they're doing. And, uh, you know, I think we can learn a lot by looking at what California has done uh, to get to a, a better, safer place. And, you know, we, we know that we have technologies like wind and solar and uh, geothermal and we have enormous opportunities in the efficiency space uh, we we can we can do a lot if we commit ourselves to doing it and one great example is in this past year the US automakers the auto workers and environmental organizations like National Wildlife Federation got together and supported the uh, Obama administration's efforts to cut uh, uh, auto fuel usage and, and we now have a policy in place that will uh, get to about 54 and a half miles per gallon by 2025. And I can assure you, having visited Detroit, the industry is dead serious about getting there. And the, at the end of the day, we'll have uh, more efficient automobiles. We'll have automobiles that don't require so darn much uh, fossil fuel. And I think we'll have automobiles that will take us to a whole new generation of uh of outcomes. And uh, and so it, that's a wonderful example, another wonderful example of what we can do. But uh, it really requires us to um, have an imagination uh, and, and see that there are real benefits in our solutions. Uh, is there really any legitimate debate any longer, Larry, about the reality of climate change, or do people still look at you like you're crazy? Not among any uh, of the scientific community. The scientific community is... Uh, you know, 98% of the scientists who have worked in this space uh, acknowledge uh, the urgency of climate change and and support uh, swift action. And the same is true of the, the academies of science around the world. All all of the major academies of science have now issued, uh, in some cases, repeated statements urging swift action to address climate change. So, from a science standpoint, there is no debate. Uh, that where where the rub comes in is that there are there are special interests, frankly, who have enormous investments in fossil fuels. And those folks will do everything in their power, and they have enormous power to prevent uh, progress on, on climate policy. And so if there's if there's a battle to be had, it's it's with those who uh, ha- have a stake in, in, uh, in carbon uh, interest. And I guess the only thing that will change that, you know, and it's probably going to be the thing that, you know, that when that tipping point comes will depend how, how bad things have gotten, is profitability. You know, as soon as, as soon as those people that are investing in oil see the profitability of the alternate fuels, then things will change. Is there anything we can do in the meantime to, to accelerate that? Well, I, I happen to think that right now we're facing a 
you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the so-called fiscal cliff and and uh, the sequestration and all that. And I think it's time to take a look at how we help fortify and underpin Social Security and Medicare and the other uh, federal programs that are beneficial, and do that by putting a uh, a, uh, a price on carbon pollution and and make uh, those who emit carbon in large quantities, you know. Pay a carbon fee for for doing so, and I think that will shift the center of gravity quite dramatically. And they will once they realize that they're paying a fee for having uh, high volumes of carbon pollution, they will move uh, very significantly in a in a different direction. So I think pricing the pollution, internalizing the external costs. You know, right now there's a big debate in Congress about paying for uh, Superstorm Sandy. And uh, we're, you know, we're looking at $60 billion. Well, you know, when you add that to Katrina and to a number of other major storms that we are having um, in these uh, more turbulent times, it starts to add up to a very, very large number. And I don't think our federal government can continue to pay for these storms, which we know are are getting worse year by year, about 1% a year, according to the uh, reinsurance industry's uh, data. But clearly, we, we need to pay for the damages, and, and we need to internalize those costs in carbon. And all that can be done with a carbon uh, fee on pollution. Well, there is no question that uh, there is a lot of dysfunction in Washington these days, and hopefully this is an issue that will eventually generate some bipartisan support. We're grateful that we have leaders like uh, Larry Schweiger, the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Fund. His new book is called Last Chance, Preserving Life on Earth, uh, and he lays out his whole thoughts in that book. And, of course, you can learn more by going to his website, nationalwildlife.org. Larry Schweiger, thanks so much. Well, folks, we hope that we've helped motivate you even just a little bit to realize that it is never too late to get off the couch and get into life. We did a little bit of everything today, including take a look into the future. And here is the good news about your future. You can, to a large degree, control how much you enjoy it. You have the power to find meeting, to create opportunity. You only have to start growing bolder. What a great message that is, Mark. I mean, it just resounds with everybody. And of course, we're here to help that happen. You can find Growing Boulder not only here on the radio, but there's Growing Boulder TV. Have you watched? GrowingBoulder.com. Have you logged online? And now Growing Boulder Magazine. And if you haven't already, make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where you get these motivational messages and we just keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. Until then, we'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to Growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Said